Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You that Your mercies are new every morning and that we are the thankful and humbled recipients of Your great grace to us in Christ. Lord, as we open up the book of Leviticus this morning, I pray that Your Spirit would be here to remind us and testify to the beauty and the excellencies of Christ. We thank You that You've always been a gracious God and that this was um, an expression of Your grace then to highlight the greater expression of Your grace in Christ. And we thank You that we are so blessed by the riches of Your grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Father, be with us. Help us to not just gain knowledge, gain a little insight, something to throw down at parties, what we know about Leviticus. But Father, that that You would cause us in studying these things to be transformed to the image of Christ, that we see the call to sacrifice as not just some archaic thing in the past, but the call that You've given us in Christ to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for the proclamation of the kingdom, the gospel that God is reconciling sinners to Himself in a people because of the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are um, today, I I think, going to hit Leviticus 1. I say I think because I'd like to do a a, a short just introduction to the book. But before we do that, what were some things that you remember from last time about God's giving of the law to Moses? Just some things that hit you from last time. The purpose of it, why, why it was given, how we can use it as Christians. What were some things that you recall? If, if anything. Okay. And moral, the, the Ten Commandments, moral, civic, ceremonial. Good. And, and each of them has its own use and purpose for which it was given. Good. Um, what does ultimately show us? Do you recall? We've seen this uh, when we went through the, the Ten Commandments. Do, do you recall? Ultimately, what does it show us? Our need for a Savior. What else? The character of God. The character of the lawgiver, right? Um, why was it gracious for God to give the law to His people? I think many times we tend to make this section of the Bible um, dichotomous, at odds with what we think of as grace in the New Testament. The giving of the law by God here, Leviticus, is grace. It's a gracious thing. What was going on? What else is the option? I I may have read some of this uh, to you guys before. There's a 
a prayer that was found on a tablet which dates from the mid-7th century B.C. And it's called the, the, the Sumerian Prayer, the Prayer to the Unknown God. And every time I read this, it affects me. I just I feel the weight of the, the, just the despair this guy or persons, whoever wrote it, um, has. This is not Israel. This is not from the Hebrew culture. This is from the cultures around. And listen, listen to what he says. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it starts this way. May the wrath of the heart of my God be pacified. May the God who is unknown to me be pacified. May the goddess who is unknown to me be pacified. May the known and unknown God be pacified. May the known and unknown goddess be pacified. The sin which I have committed I know not. The misdeed which I have committed I know not. A gracious name may my God announce. A gracious name may my goddess announce. A gracious name may my known and unknown God announce. A gracious name may my known and unknown goddess announce. Pure food have I not eaten. Clear water have I not drunk. An offense against my God I have unwittingly committed. A transgression against my goddess I have unwittingly done. O Lord, my sins are many. Greater my iniquities. My God, my sins are many. Greater my iniquities. The sin which I have committed, I know not. The iniquity which I have done, I know not. The offense which I have committed, I know not. The transgression I have done, I know not. The Lord in the anger of His heart has looked upon me. The God in the wrath of His heart has visited me. The goddess has become angry with me and has grievously stricken me. The known or unknown God has straightened me. The known or unknown goddess has brought affliction upon me. I sought for help, but no one takes my hand. (laughs) I wept, but no one came to my side. I lamented, but no one hearkens to me. I am afflicted. I am overcome. I cannot look up unless a merciful God, unless my merciful God, I turn, I make supplication. I kiss the feet of my goddess and the language says crawl before her, they think. It's kind of rubbed out there. How long, my God? And then it just goes on and on and on. This is the status of the culture in which God comes down on the mountain to Israel and reveals Himself. And what does He say? We learn this in Exodus 20. What does He say? I am the Lord your God Right? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is my relationship with you, the Lord your God, and this is what I've done. I've redeemed you. Relationship and redemption begins the covenant in the Old Testament. That's grace. If this were not here, if God had not spoken, you have what you have in the other cultures. The crops are dying. What do we do? Well, we sacrifice this to Molech, who we think is God. And it rained, so this must be what pleases him. And the more intense the sacrifice, maybe work. It didn't work again. We did the, 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 the animal. What about a child? That worked. That's what he wants. Um, the, 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 we're not having enough kids to populate the... So what do we do? We do these rites and these things. And it worked. We suddenly, everybody got, 
pregnant and have the kids came to term and didn't die in infancy. So maybe this works. Maybe this will please Ashtoreth. Right? Um, you think about Baal. No rain, no crops, no kids. We got defeated by our enemies. Maybe we dance around a fire and a sacrifice and beat ourselves with whips. Maybe that'll work. Hey, look, we won a battle. Let's keep doing that. To the unknown God, what I've done, I know not. How to please Him, her, or it, I know not. And in the midst of this, God speaks. And everything changes. Everything changes. I want to do a brief introduction to Leviticus. And then jump into chapter 1 and, and what's called the burnt offering, or the whole burnt offering. Leviticus, in its essence, is a series of worship manuals. It's God's nod to organized religion. You know, people, I don't like organized... Well, this is how it looks. Six manuals, and, and, they're, and they're organized in, in certain ways. The first manual, which we'll be going over for, for the next couple of weeks, is the manual of sacrifice for all Israel. And then they're broken down into a manual of sacrifice for the priesthood, the cleanliness code, the manual of the day of atonement, which is one chapter, the holiness code, and then the manual for funding of the sanctuary. And it's almost entirely legal code. We mentioned that earlier. It's almost entirely legal code. Um, but there's a couple of, couple of sections that give a historical narrative, but even those narratives give expression to the legal code. And the way the code is set up, it's not strictly statute upon statute upon statute upon statute. It's, it's, it's a case law. It gives a scenario, explains how to do it, and that scenario is to inform them on other scenarios that may not be referenced in the code. It's a case law. All right. Mosaic authorship, not really a big doubt if you take the Bible seriously and read it. All of the Old Testament refers back to this time as Moses being the author. Jesus, when He healed the leper, remember, He says, go to the priest, do the sacrifice as Moses instructed you as a sign to them. Jesus commenting that Moses drafted Leviticus. Um, the last verse of the book these are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai from start to finish. It's Moses. I just want to get that out of the way. Some people get all the Clinton the Gnecticozoic about that and he wrote it. There it is. Um, the Ten of Meeting. Let's look at uh, Leviticus chapter 1. <clears throat> it's a mere 17 verses, so I'll read it for you. I feel like we should stand. No, I'm kidding. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. 
Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out of the side of the uh, out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You see in verses 1 and 2, A general statement. This is an opening section. It spells out three types of burnt offering. But the book begins with the Hebrew word then. Why would it do that? Then. What had just happened? How did we end in Exodus? Tabernacle's finished. And so you see the Leviticus begins immediately where Exodus leaves off. It, It... tags back to the historical place for the giving of the law. The tabernacle is finished. This is how we're going to do it. Right? Then, so he's speaking, God is speaking, as the king, the great king over a people. We talked about the Caesarean Treaty and this whole idea of protection and the great king and the lesser kings and all of that. He's speaking from his palace, his place of enthronement, and giving the people the terms of the covenant. This is what pleases him as the king. He's redeemed them. He's in relationship with them. These are the terms of the relationship. This is how we keep, this is how we keep the relationship going well. Okay? And it starts with these series of sacrifices that we're going to see in the first five, part of six chapters. Um, the series of types of sacrifices that will be used in the rest of of this code, this covenant code. And it, and it begins with then. There's a connection at the end of Exodus. God descends onto the Holy of Holies and it's here at the tent of meeting that God will meet mankind. It's here that he will be worshipped. This is the cultural center of Israel. Who's initiating the meeting? 
How does it begin? Who starts the conversation? The Lord. It says Lord, right? I mean, Moses doesn't go to God and say, now what? The Lord initiates the conversation. What does it tell you about God? What does it highlight about us? Again, from the fall, it's God who graciously condescends to us. He has to instruct us. We're darkened in heart. We don't know how to please Him. He speaks and everything changes. So He condescends to us. Here's the deal. You have within Leviticus, as we saw in Exodus, how does a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? So once again, God graciously gives His people a prescription of how formal worship will take place in Israel. And He's done this before. When He came down on the mountain, thunder and lightning, very, very frightening, He gives a command to the people after He descends. And He did this twice on the mountain. And here, He's descended in the midst of them, and now He gives the extended command of what the covenant is will look like for Israel. All right. What role does Moses serve again? Who is he? He's the mediator. That's his purpose. And we saw that in Exodus as well. What two purposes are we seeing for the tabernacle? What's flowing out of it? And what's coming into it? What are the two purposes of the tabernacle that we see here? The offerings are coming in. So there's worship coming in. There's aroma going out. What else is going out? The Lord spoke to Moses. What would be coming out of the tabernacle? God's presence. Presence and His blessing and His mediated by what? No, not teeth. God is, God is Spirit doesn't have a body like man. What? Words. Words, yes. God's Word is coming out of the tabernacle. Pulling teeth to get it. God's Word is coming out of the tabernacle. He reveals His Word to His people. And the people come in to worship through sacrifice and the work of the priesthood. All right. The first statement in, in verse 3 concerning an offering. That's where it all begins. It's a very general statement. And he gets more specific chapters, uh, like I said, in the rest of the chapters 1 through part of 6, some of 7. But it starts with the if-then clause. What are the options presented here? What three options do we see for this burnt offering? Herd, flock, and birds. Now we'll talk about why that is in a little bit. I bet you can probably guess why. Um... Herd, flock, and birds. Herd animals, which would you think would be the most valuable, by the way? The, 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 the cow, the herd animal, right? Flocks would be considered what? What would you? Sheep, goats. Goats are included. I just want you to know. They were not excluded. They were also included. Um, and then birds. Okay. So the, the herd animals, the bulls, the, the, uh, the, the, the cows, were... Um, were were the most valuable person could offer what, and they're and they're to be without defect. Uh, and male, it's kind of showing that the value that the culture places on males there that they're male. Uh, it's called a burnt offering. 
And literally it means to go up or to ascend. And it signifies that the, the sacrifice is totally consumed. A lot of the other sacrifices we're going to see, they share in the meal. The fellowship offering we're going to look at. The meal taken with the priest and the offeror. And in, in the grain offering, you'll see some, the, the priest can take some of it and, and eat it. And the other offering, sin offering, guilt offering, they can take parts of the offering. Some, most of it's burnt, but some of it's reserved for the priest. Not so with this one. This is a burnt offering. In fact, some of the translations, the Greek version of the Old Testament, translated this um, whole burnt offering. Makes it real simple. It's the whole burnt offering. The whole thing is is given in uh, on the altar. Um, why? What reason does the text give for this offering? What does it say? That he may be what? He may be accepted. That's a pretty weighty statement, isn't it? I mean, we have holy God, unholy people, and here's this whole burnt offering that he may be accepted before the Lord. It means that the offering is effective. It has um, some purpose to take care of one's sins. And this offering is a means of reconciling a holy God and an unholy person. What strikes you about the action of putting his hand on the head of the burnt offering? What, what does that mean? Have we seen this before? I think I remember you discussing it, but placing the sin upon The idea is transference, right? It's, a, it's, it's the, let this represent me. And it's wholly consumed. There, there's a... We see this a lot in Leviticus with the peace offering, the sin offering. It's called scapegoating is, is kind of the, the, the go-to term for that. And, um, and here we have a more routine offering for atonement. The idea is a transference of guilt from one person to the animal. And that's a common sign in the ancient Middle East. Um, there's a Hittite document that describes a ritual of fertility where the person transfers fertility from a cow to a person by laying their hands on the cow's horns. I'll just let you go with that. But that's, that was a cultural thing of transference. More importantly, there are other examples of this in Scripture, and the clearest representation of that is going to be the Day of Atonement, when we see actually what uh, actually a, a goat go off into the wilderness as a, as a, a sign of, of scapegoating. All right. What? Yes. Sorry, that's using the term as it's intended. What seems to be the main function of the burnt offering? There's atonement here. And we see two types of atonement, right? In Scripture, we see the propitiation, the staying of God's wrath, the expiation, the the clearing off of of sin. Um, Is there any specific sin mentioned here? See anything? When you do this, do this. Is there any of that? No. Why not? Why would it? Why would we? Why would we be? Huh? Hold on. Why would we be making atonement for something that there's nothing named as a sin? What's going on here? What are they? For what are they atoning? Okay. A serious answer would be what? <laughs> They're sinful beings. 
that their entire being needs to be atoned. Ah. This is going to a very fundamental issue, isn't it? In Adam all die. By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is addressing the sinful nature before a holy God. The whole thing is consumed. The, the word set means to lay an object heavily on something. The idea is that sin and guilt lie heavily upon the worshiper, but now the weight is being set upon the animal. And God's glory is, is weightiness. Look at the slaughter of this thing. The language indicates, seems to indicate, some, there's some debate on this, but it seems to indicate that there is, uh, that, that either the worshiper slits the throat of the animal or the priesthood slits the throat of the animal. I tend to, I tend to think it's the, the priest doing it, uh, just because they'd have more, maybe more professionals at it with <laughs> the practice. Um, but that's that's if if it's the other way, then it also it it, it has a um, an idea of the worshiper being involved in the actual sacrifice of the animal. He then has to skin it and cut it to pieces for easier handling. Kind of a grisly business. And this is for everybody doing this again and again and again and again. the The priest gets the hide. It's good for tent making. But the rest of it is consumed. And the only exception to this practice on a whole burnt offering is the Passover lamb. While there is uh, this slaughter going on, what are some of the priests doing? What, do they, what does it say that they're doing? They're catching the blood, right? And the bowls that we talked about at length when we were talking about building the, the, the altar. They're catching the blood and they're doing something with it. They're throwing it on the side of the altar. This is a sign of, and it's not just a sprinkle. The the language, um, let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, it, 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 the ESV says to throw it, but literally it's toss, splash, or dash. You've got, you got to have a lot to do a dash, right? It's not just a little dribble. There's a lot of blood involved on every one of these. Every one of these. And... Um, it's a way of presenting the sacrifice on the altar to God. And it says in 7 through 9, it says the, the, there's, a, there's a duty then that the worshiper has to wash all the traces of the uncleanness while the priest arranged the wood and the sacrifice for the offering. And the priest is to burn all of it. And burn here means turn it into smoke. It doesn't exist anymore. It's nothing but ash by the time they're done. Turn it into smoke. And as it talks about the smoke that's ascending to God, it comments on the sacrifice. It will be a pleasing aroma to God. So the question naturally comes up when I'm discussing this with my eight-year-old. Does God smell? Is that the point here? God likes good fragrances? God likes barbecue. He's, he's really into the grilling. Does He smell? What does this mean? A pleasing aroma to the Lord. What does that mean? That's the language of the culture, isn't it? That, that he approves of it. It's acceptable to him. He grants it merit. 
so to speak. He's pleased with the sacrifice that has been carried out properly. Then in verses 10 through 17, we talk about a couple of other types of animals. Why, why allow for goats, sheep, and pigeons and turtle doves? Why not just stick with bulls? Not everybody has a bull. Not everybody has a bull. Why? It's made for why doesn't everybody have a bull? I mean, they're an agrarian society. Because they're what? Yeah, why, why I don't have a BMW or Mercedes? Thank you for pointing that out. Um, so, so, you have people of different economic levels. Back, back to the serious answer. People of economic, answers, uh, economic levels. And then, they have... Uh, from that, God meets them at their ability to, to do the offering, right? You have, uh, you have a, a defined upper class with bulls, you have a defined middle class with sheep and goats, and you have a defined lower class, and all of them are able to do this. All of them are required to do it, but it's not out of their reach. They're, they're not going to say, I can never be atoned because I can't afford a bull. I can't spend my entire year's salary on a bull to do this. What does that tell you about God? That He would make provision. He's interested in the heart, not the sacrifice. And that's a, that's a point that He brings out in Malachi as well. It, it's the heart, the repentance of the heart. And He meets people where they are. All right. He's not a socialist. Thank you for bringing that out. That's a valid point. All right. Sheep, sheep and goats had to be at least eight days old, by the way. That may become important later on. Yes? Why is it also called a food offering? A food offering. Because it's a... It's a the, the symbol is that, that it's giving God... It's a meal to God. Oddly, he's not eating it. But it is a it is considered to be a food type deal versus grain. It's going to be a bread offering. What kind of it, Right, right, yeah, acceptable, right. And, and the other thing is, as opposed to maybe a drink offering, which is another type of offering, we'll see. Um, maybe there's that distinction. But it's a difference in maybe satisfying God's wrath versus the pagan gods where they would lay out food mm-hmm. as if they, they needed it. Right, okay. right. He doesn't need to eat. He's doing this as a provision to them for, for, um, for their atonement. Uh, the, this burnt offering was the most expensive sacrifice. It had to be completely burned on the altar, and, and as we discussed before, we'll see some of the others allowed the priests or the offeror to, to eat some of it. Um, and this has to do really with the purpose of the burnt offering. There are a couple of purposes here, and we've seen, we've seen them. Uh, with specific instances of sin, 
there are the sin and guilt offerings that we'll see in chapters 4 and 5. But here, it's dealing with the nature of general human sinfulness. By nature, children of wrath. This, this offering was an atonement for the sinner, not just a specific sin. In giving the whole animal to the Lord, there's a recognition that their sin before God was great, and that God is holy, and only a full and costly ransom payment will do. That's the point there. And as we saw last week, the sacrifices of the Old Testament don't remove the sin. Right? The, the, the deal with the sacrifices is that it points to Jesus. The faith in the one to come is what saves them. The faith in the one to come is, is how their sin is dealt with. But this is a means by which to express that faith. The Old Testament believers look forward to what the sacrifices portrayed, namely the cross of Christ. They received forgiveness and acceptance with God when these sacrifices were offered by faith in the one to come. And he did come. He has come. 1 Peter 1, 18 says this, Knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we come to the altar not needing to make repeated sacrifices, but to rejoice in the permanent, eternal sacrifice of Christ. Let's look at Hebrews uh, 10. I really wrestled with making this a combo series of Leviticus and Hebrews, but I like sanity. Didn't know that I'd be able to maintain it doing, doing both. But I want to look at this. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. By the way, notice the two offerings he references there. The burnt offering, which we talked about, deals with the general sinfulness of man. And the sin offerings, which deal with specific sins. These are the two that are referenced and given as Christ is given credit for saying these in Scripture, what he's come to do for the will of God. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He is our whole burnt offering. Ephesians 5, 1-2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, 
and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This language of sacrifice, this language of whole burnt offering and of sin offering and of guilt offering permeates the New Testament. It's everywhere. Understanding how this stuff works gives us a richer understanding of the language used in the New Testament describing Christ. And also the second purpose of the burnt offering, which was to underscore prayers of request and thanksgiving. If it's a serious request, to underscore the seriousness of it, they gave the very expensive whole burnt offering. By offering the whole animal, they were displaying their dependence on the Lord and their need for His help. In thankfulness, when they gave the whole burnt offering, they were thanking and praising God for what He'd already done and underscoring that He alone is worthy of thankfulness and praise. He alone is glorious. They're underscoring that with the cost of, of this offering. And the New Testament authors take the idea of Christ being our whole burnt offering once for all for sin, our nature, and our sin offering once for all for all the sins we've committed, past, present, and future. They also tag it with our lives. How are we to live? Lives of dependence upon God and lives of thankfulness for what He has done and is doing for us and in us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's Romans 12.1. What comes before Romans 12.1? What's going on before? A complete answer would be 1 through 11. That'd be acceptable. What's going on there? What's he talking about? In 1 through 11. He's talking about all of sin fallen short, but God sacrifices Christ that He may be just to punish those who don't repent and the justifier of the ungodly for those who put their faith in Christ. And that in that, He sanctifies us through the blood of Christ. It's an ongoing work of repentance and faith and trust in what God has done. And not only that, He has the freedom to do it because He chooses who He will and He condemns who He will. For this purpose I raise you up, he tells Pharaoh. Uh, Jacob I loved, Esau hated. He goes through all of that, all the elements of what God is doing in Christ. He spells out in 1 through 11. And what is the response to this great mercy? Sacrifice of ourselves, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, to be holy, H-O-L-Y, and acceptable, to God in thankfulness for what He's done and in dependence on what He continues to do. That's our reasonable service. That's the least we should do. In light of the goodness of God redeeming a people, the only response is one of dependence on Him and thanksgiving to Him. Jesus says it this way, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do we live lives that are wholly sacrificed 
to God. How do we do that? What does that look like? Well, I think the New Testament gets to a lot of that. But that's the idea behind where they're drawing, how to work that out, what that looks like, what wisdom do we need, what discernment do we need on areas of our lives that should be sacrificed. Laying down what we want, laying down what we feel entitled to, and doing it as a dependence and a thankfulness on what God has done for us in Christ. That's what we pull from this. It's what the New Testament authors pulled from this. So, any comments, any questions? I never, until today, what you said, I never associated uh, the sacrifice being burned up completely with uh, Christ's holy WHO right. sacrifice. And that we need to sacrifice ourselves, like you're talking about, for each other mm-hmm. and daily, holy. Right. Yes. All of us. So this, as the sacrifice was completely consumed and burnt up, all in the smoke, we need to completely give ourselves. Right. Yeah. And hold nothing back. I never saw the connection with it. Yeah. Did you mention Romans 8? I think that's I didn't I didn't mention that, but that again they, they draw from it heavily. So yeah. Present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Twelve one I think it says that two. Yeah. Anything else? Sure, it's more than one place, but it was in that Bible study when I was with the girl, mm-hmm. where it's talking about Christ's love, and there was um, the one that says, um, "Women who love and the men who hate them." Is that no? no? Okay. Um, but uh, anyway, there was. <laughs> there was one of the verses that where it was talking about um, Christ giving Himself up as a sacrifice, and. Just um, when when I was going through that with them, I just sort of I went to the Blue Letter Bible mm-hmm. online, you mm-hmm. know, and started looking at sure. the Greek and just looking at what that really meant. It meant he willingly presented himself as a victim of a crime. Mm-hmm. He willingly turned himself over to be guilty of a crime, to be punished. Or, well, for many crimes. <laughs> but he, it, anyway, it just, I, I think sometimes it's helpful to even uh, work through passages like that and kind of reword them in something. If you were in court and somebody who had, had never done anything mm-hmm. wrong walked in and willingly presented himself to take the place of your crime, and not only your crime, but your crime and your crime and your crime. Mm-hmm. And, and, and all of that, anyway, it just is is a picture of him taking on that us placing our hand on his head mm-hmm. as he's going to willingly be sacrificed wholly on our behalf. Some of the old guys talk about laying hold of Christ. And I think that that's what they're talking about is, is the transference issue, the, the idea of I view, I, I, I place all of my junk onto you and in exchange get your righteousness. The the idea of of trusting that what he did was on my behalf. Yeah. It, it's more than him just taking the punishment that we deserve, but he like actually literally became our sin. Like it like it actually transferred to him. 
and God poured out his wrath on him and He was treated as if he had done everything that we've done. I mean is it Uh, I, th- I think there may be somewhere in... I thought it was Corinthians. Yeah. One of the Corinthian letters. 517. All right. Yes, that's a safe to say. All right, anything else? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this picture but uh, what an overwhelming picture it is for us. First, that you would have your Son wholly consumed for sinners such as us. And that in His willing sacrifice to take on our sin, we may be holy and blameless before you when we trust Him. We pray for hearts that understand this and hearts that yield to it. Don't bow up and reserve some element of our own will or action to save us. It's a wholly consumed sacrifice and it was presented by you for us. By the same token, Father, it's overwhelming for us to live lives that are wholly consumed for you and what that means and how that works out and the wisdom and discernment it takes to decide am I sacrificing and being submitted to Christ in this area or am I just doing what I want to do and jumping off the altar? God, would you give us hearts that first seek your glory, that first seek an expression of dependence and thankfulness for what you've done and what you're doing for us in Christ that we treat each other in ways that are sacrificial, not selfish. That we would treat the, those on the outside, unbelievers, in ways that display thankfulness, not regret because we can't do something that they get to do, but thankfulness for what you've done for us in Jesus and what you are doing for us in Jesus. We ask for these things in His name. Amen.